So we are uh, exploring the four foundations, <clears throat> and I know there are many new faces here. So what I like to do anyway is to briefly review the first two foundations. We're on number three, and uh, see how they come in synchronicity to one another, that they're not just individual projects in themselves or foundations for uh, laying up our uh, mindfulness and uh, on that foundation, and now I guess I'll try that one. They really are sequential. And what I think the Buddha is trying to show us, which is the evolution through form. And so uh, just in that direction and with that, uh, with that understanding, we'll go through the three foundations tonight <clears throat> and uh, see how, what it is that is behind the traditional way of looking at these things. I don't, I think the tradition might have been built up some many, many hundreds of years ago and then everyone just sort of followed suit, sort of like we just won't change the rules. But I believe that Buddhism in its essence has an aliveness to us, an evolutionary aliveness to us that can bring our own metaphors, our own way of seeing, our own investment and perspective. And if it isn't alive and doesn't grow with each generation of truth seekers, then it's a dead thing. But I believe it does. And so uh, let's just look at this from a slightly different perspective. We begin uh, in the first foundation, we begin an unsettling exploration of the world in the form of body. And I love the fact that, I mean, it's just a, it's a starting place. He's saying, okay, everyone, come home. Now let's look at what it means to be at home. And all of a sudden our rather frenetic thoughts and our unconscious displays and reactivities are gathered, are collected, and we land. And we, for the first time, light begins to shine upon where we land. And we go, whoa, wait a second here. This doesn't feel exactly like what I expected it to feel. As we, in, as we entertain new uh, insight, as we begin to explore old material, old in the sense that we have always thought we knew completely what the body was. <clears throat> and no matter what times or when in the history of our species we explored it, we always thought we knew something about it and had an idea of what it was and where it was going and its composition. But when we actually begin to bring our attention back into this physical form, we really see how little we know about it. And it starts questioning the assumptions we have made uh, for uh, as long as we've been alive, alive. And it's very unsettling to have new facts presented to us about old objects because it forces us to rearrange our, our uh, conclusions. That's anytime we really uh, accept a new fact in, there's a ripple effect in our whole consciousness as we try to bring that into the equation of how we perceive the world and how we understand the world to be. Even the smallest effect has that ripple effect, but when we take on the most personal fact we have, which is our body, 
and we explore it with an open question about what this thing is, you can be assured that the ripple effect is going to be seismic on the whole system. And in fact, at one phrase of that first foundation, the Buddha invites us to see without previous knowledge or expectation. Well, if I don't have my knowledge bank, if I don't know what it is that I'm looking at, if I actually clean the slate and see what is there without my certainty of knowing, the whole thing gets very shaky in terms of even what I'm looking at. And that shakiness begins that sense of unsettledness. But this is where and what it feels like to be conscious, to grow in consciousness. When you, we are moving from unconscious to consciousness, which is the path of awakening, then to be shaken, to, to look at something consciously, means we're going to look at it beyond just we have, what we have assumed it to be. And that's going to create a kind of tension within our system. And so this sense of body is seen for just what it is. But it's also seen, and this is a deeper level of perception, it's also seen as the most personalized form that the world represents. There's no more personal form than the form of the body. Now, if we can come to, to some kind of repose within this very personal form and square ourselves with it so that it provides some ground for our sense of being. And amidst all the turmoil that is going on within it, the fabric of change and impermanence and all of the different movement that is the body, and if we can settle with that so that it doesn't keep confusing us and throwing us back into more uh, anxiety, then we can settle with just about anything. So it provides a, an enormous training right off the bat for squaring ourselves with forms as forms arise within us. Because not only do we have to be uh, uh, aware and open to the form of the physical body, but also the uh, releasing of emotions that is contained within the body and how that comes at us as well. So it, this unsettling exploration also imposes, uh, conceptually, we've imposed upon it a certain set of boundaries of where we have created a perimeter system for our security. Right? The body is, a, is, and inside the body is the inside, and the outside of the body is the outside, is the most obvious boundary formation. And also in this formation of body, we've closed off a region of the mind-body to be the mind, and then that which is outside the mind is the body. So there's another boundary there. And even within the mind, we have created a boundary, which is the part of ourselves that we accept as the true representation of our image, and the part that we have not accepted, which is the shadow side that we refuse to acknowledge and project outside of ourselves. So this 
this exploration of the body is a huge exploration of the very boundary systems that the mind has created within itself. So when we are often looking at the body, there is enormous range of questions, of exploration, of investigation that this body contains. And it gets as well established within the principles of a steady attention. And it begins to invite a curiosity uh, within what form is that is of, of, of the essence here. That sense of curiosity, of inquisitiveness, is the most important component of our, of our learning. And there's a natural curiosity that comes in us that I was speaking about this morning, where anytime we're not afraid of something and we see it as a limitation, there's some sense of limitation of me being in the body, of just that statement of me being in the body, there's a feeling of a limitation there. How come I'm not outside the body? What's, what's going on here? That curiosity is a stimulation of heart. It's when we will only ask questions when there's a certain depersonalization to the expression of form. If we take this form to be us, all we'll want to do is protect it from outside forces and keep it securely known for what it's always been. But as it depersonalizes, as it becomes less personal, a natural inquisition comes in where we're curious about what, why are we imposing this limitation upon it? And that is essential for the resolution of the foundation of body, but also moving into the next foundation. And the next foundation is the foundation of how form comes, is birthed from the past. How is it, how does the past recreate itself in the present? Have you ever asked yourself that? When there's only the present, I hope we realize that, and that all things are embraced by the present, the infinite present, then a natural curiosity is how is it that we keep recreating the sense of the past within the present? And so the Buddha is now taking us through the foundation, the first foundation of personalized form, and opening us up to the actual methodology that we use, that the mind and body uses, to create a seeming history, a history that seems to be. Because except off, uh, out of our old picture albums, there's nowhere that we can point <clears throat> that could show us at all that the past has any truth. And even those picture albums are present. Right? So how is it it seems as if there's a past? That's a really a beautiful question. And of course, it's through that door of the seeming past, the creation of the past, that the sense of self arises as well. So this second foundation is extraordinarily important in the manifestation, in seeing the manifestation of how the self 
fulfills its, its posture, its present uh, placement, position. So let's look a little bit at how that occurs. None of this is theoretical. None of this is intellectual. All of this, I don't say anything that I don't know myself. And I invite all of us in the room, if we don't parallel that understanding, to actually explore it as it's being spoken. So this sense of of past has a very small opening, very tiny corridor in which a single beam, you might say, opens the door to the past. And that, that is a tendency or a tone or a very slight leaning of, of, a, of a pleasure, unple- a pleasant or unpleasant or a neutral feeling, a slight reference uh, towards something that has been or something that reminds me of. So there's a tinge of recognition as pleasure or displeasure uh, arises. And it's from that very small cluded opening that there rushes the memory, the memory rushes forth to fill the corridor now, the avenue now, of our, our, ba- our background. And it comes just through that sense of recognition, contact, recognition, feeling. Feeling and recognition are very closely aligned. And then memory. And it's from the memory that we embody a three-dimensionality of ourself. I know who I was back then, so I also know who I am now. Because I was back then, I know I'm now. And it's that kind of logic that the self builds itself upon and then takes a firm place and represents itself. Oh, I know that. I've seen that. And the mind has a tremendous capacity to generalize situations that it's never been in before, like this one for me. I've never been in this absolute situation, neither have you. But it can look in the past and say, well, a similar one came the last time I spoke. (laughs) And then it makes a completely satisfactory representation of the present from the past. Oh, I know exactly what's going on here. I know most of you, on and on. When really the sights, sounds, smells, and tastes that on which that assumption is built are completely different from last time. There's no ground data that is similar whatsoever. So what is it building it upon? It's building it upon the feeling tone, right? And the memory of. And it's helpful now if we just pause, I think, and we say, okay. So what would life look like if memory didn't intrude? Suddenly the thing opens up, doesn't it? Suddenly there is a range of possibilities that never were allowed from just 
the memory of something. The potential becomes endless, and it's because of that endlessness potential that we bring the memory forward. We want to narrow down the potential. We want to narrow down the possibilities so that there's functionality here. So I know my way around. I can get back to my car. So I know each step I'm taking. And so we narrow the infinite down to the finite in order to have a functional reference in order to move within it. Which is fine because an organism has to do that. But to believe in that functional necessity is another step of insanity. Right? There's no reason we have to, we can use things as representing what we know them to be. But to have them only be what we know, have known them to be is insanity. Because then we lose everything. We lose the potential. We lose the wonder. We lose the mystery. We lose the awe. We lose the excitement, the joy. You name it, we've lost it. And it becomes just this. Oh, I'm giving another talk. Okay, so now we go to the third foundation. And this one, you see, it gets more refined. And the Buddha starts taking us really out there. Okay, so I'm going to take you right along with it. (laughs) If you'll follow, (laughs) you can arrest the motion anytime you like. (laughs) You're welcome to leave. (laughs) Okay, so first of all, let me just read a couple of passages because he's just like he just throws the whole thing open and this will obliterate your practice okay so he just that's it so if you listen to this with any serious intent all of you will get up and drive away (laughs) because what is he says he says okay he goes through a whole list of things that uh that how you will perceive When the mind is delusionary, you will discern that. When it's not delusionary, you will discern that. When it uh, is constricted, you'll you'll see that. When it's not constricted, you'll see that. When it's scattered, you'll see that. When it's not scattered, you'll see that. When it's enlarged, you'll see that. When it's small, you'll see that. When it's surpassed, I like this one, you'll see that. When it's unsurpassed, you'll see that one. When the mind is concentrated, get this one. You'll discern it's concentrated. When it's not concentrated, you will discern that. Basically, he says, there's no formation of mind that's perfect. That's the way we're not trying to maneuver this thing by shaping it a certain way. Wait a minute now. I've just spent my life trying to get this thing in order. And you're taking that away from me? What's he pointing to here? So just for a minute, let's just... There's, no, there's, there's nothing that the mind brings forth that isn't attended to, that isn't acknowledged. And it's opposite. But I always thought I was supposed to have a concentrated mind as opposed to an unconcentrated mind. But here he's telling us that that's not... Well, what about the revelation, the mind that's revelatory? Well, that's good. But what about when it's not? Is that also good? 
So he's pulling the rug out of any placement, any position we stand. He's saying just this. Anything else is too much, just this. And furthermore, he's taking away any counterbalancing. He's removing all forms of doing. Now it gets very quiet, doesn't it? It gets very simple. Now I have a sense that the simpler this practice becomes, the closer we are. Because we get quiet. So first let's acknowledge the quiet where that takes us. And he's saying there's no preferred state. So what is he pointing at? And this is remarkable because I never think it's emphasized sufficiently. He's taking us out of form completely. It's not so much, it's not so important what the mind sees This is what he's saying, in fact. But that the mind sees. Not what it sees, but the seeing itself. Not the configuration, not the preference, not all the practice tensions. but the seeing itself. Now, what are the implications of that? I mean, I mean, they're considerable, really. Uh, first of all, what comes to many of us, oh, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for that. I, I feel like I need to pull back a little bit and get more concentrated. But the sense of self always feels incomplete, never feels resolved. Form, by its very nature, is incomplete. And so to stay in form and wait for some completed sense of form simply simply is a forever journey. So I like to bracket what he's saying with different ways of saying it, like, For instance, we're sitting and we have the usual array of hindrances, let's say sleepiness arise. And instead of doing counterbalancing, standing up, working with the sleepiness, we simply stop here for a moment and say, is awareness sleepy? Now we've reframed the whole issue. It's awareness desiring. I'm desiring, but that's the form and expression that he's taking us out of. Is awareness desiring. Is awareness aversive. See, the reframing 
takes us out of the burden of trying to improve the form, which is what we usually try to do and why we try to balance the sleepiness with something else is because the sleepiness is not welcomed in the same way that we welcome alertness. And it's that division of welcoming and unwelcoming, of liking and disliking, of pulling in and pushing away, that he's saying absolutely has to end. Enough. You're just trying to improve the form. And the form will never be sufficient. And in so doing, the relaxation, the simple release of formulaic Buddhism blueprint Buddhism, the technique of improvement is wiped away. Now, if you want to be shaken at your roots, this foundation will do it, as I mentioned, because it leaves us with nothing. Now, I was uh, in my little cottage there, and I'd had a series of interviews. And one of the interviews, there was some sense that I just wasn't quite, I didn't respond as effectively as I could have. And I was just noticing that reflection. And I noticed the mind sort of having a wistful sense of remorse, just a like that. And I saw the delight I would get out of it if I pursued that remorse. I saw that. I saw, oh, you know, you can really milk this thing. I could even go and burden Sky with how remorseful I was. <laughs> I could just encourage that, couldn't I? I mean, we all do. But it couldn't form. It's, I saw that and then like that. And I thought, damn, I can't do it anymore. I didn't, it's not that I didn't want to. <laughs> it's it wouldn't form. It just wouldn't form. At some, at some place in practice, the, when we have, the, the untruth of the situation will no longer form. It will no longer form into a truth because we've seen it. We've seen it now. And I thought, my God. That's amazing. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to completely get lost in a state of mind. Now, I say that, but don't hold me to it. <laughs> but I have what, one of the ways I love to test is when I feel something coming up that feels so convincing, I'll say, okay, you know, there's, this is arising. No, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not leaving. I'm not, I'm not moving from here. And I say, is there love for this too? Or is there a contentment within this? I, I call forth the formless. I call it forth in whatever way that I can do that. It, where is, where is contentment in this moment? All of those different ways. Not the 
transitory contentment that the state of mind may or may not hold, but the absolute contentment that awareness holds. So you just call it forth and say, okay, where is it? If it's not, if this state of mind is the reality, and, I, and there's no other reality here, then, then let's just get on with being a worldling, because this is all a bunch of, this is, we're just playing games here. So I like to test it at the worst possible moment. Okay? And then it can't, there's nothing there that convinces me anymore. And then you move through. Now, I don't want to take away the ways you're working within your form. Just realize that there's a limitation to working that way. There's an end to it. There has to be, and it's not going to feel like an end. It's not going to feel like the form is completely ready now to make its next move. It's going to feel incomplete forever. And we we can't expect a sense of readiness to be without that sense of incompleteness. You just go because you're tired of waiting for it to resolve itself. And then, you see, because we have lived just with the idea of what each thing is, we think the cure is through releasing those ideas. But keeping the tension, there's still the, ten- there's still the film of self. that depends upon, yes, you can be quieter, you can be relatively serene, you can be, your mind can be spacious, but the film of self, this film of separation is still covering. Now let's look, let's look at what the true principle behind this third foundation is. Let's reframe it so that we get a sense of what's really happening here. Most of us would say that we, I, have a mind. I have a mind, I have a body where we would place ourselves in relationship to that fact, I'm not sure. Some of us would say that I'm somewhere outside of it or in the conglomeration of of both of those things or something. But there's a sense of us having a body and also having a mind. But when you look, when we really look, we see the sense of self is coming from the mind that it's an idea from the mind. It's not something outside of the mind. It's coming from the mind. So it's a mental formation within the mind. Now this foundation, 
the third foundation, is about addressing mental, mental formations. And the sense of I is a formation the mind is forming. But we don't get a sense of that. We, we don't get a sense. When asked, we may, in our Buddha, uh, Buddhist uh, uh, experience, or perhaps just from our philosophical maturity, we'll say, no, I, I, there's no me. But that's not the way we act, and that's not the way we practice. We practice as if there were a me, and that that other philosophy was something to be gained by practicing in this fashion. But I assert that in practicing the fa- in fashion, with the sense of I, you will just create more separation within that practice. That knowing where the I is located and acting in accordance with that location as a mental phenomena will change the practice entirely, will rearrange the practice from beginning to end. In fact, two distinct forms of practice arise at this juncture. The one that just constantly references oneself in relationship to what one is doing and is constantly the watcher of what one is doing And the practices that come out of that will reinforce the sense of separation, no matter how long you do them. We think there'll be some time when the realization of non-separation will just arise. And we will have an experience of it, but an experience is not a realization. You'll experience your emptiness. You'll have moments in which you feel vacant, or whatever that you're, or you'll actually see the arising of self and the dissolution of self as part of the experience of the mind and body. But when that experience is over, you'll come back into the formation of self having a mind and body, and you'll operate the system in accordance with that principle. What does the world look like when the self is taken out of it? Not theoretically, because it's a theory already. But in actuality, what does it look like? What does a practice look like that does not keep reasserting the principles of separation within it? What does it look like? See, now we're called to challenge the very way that we perceive through the eyes, the perception through the eyes. Our assumption, and very endeared assumption, is that we're sort of behind there in control. Like, you know, I'm on my breath, and now I'm not on my breath. And when I realize I'm not on my breath, I bring myself back to my breath. And really, it's our operating system that does that. But let's look at what really happens in truth. The fact is, the attention leaves the breath. You didn't ask it to go, it went. Then, you bring your, the attention is brought back to the breath. No, excuse me for saying that. Then, there's the recognition that you're no longer with the breath. 
and you bring yourself back. Okay? Now what really happened was your attention left the breath. You didn't do that. It just left. You didn't wake yourself up to that fact. You now recognize it once that fact has occurred and bring your attention back. You weren't in charge of it leaving and you weren't in charge of the remembering of it. Look and see if that's not true. Do you remember? Can't you see? It all happened seamlessly. From what? What brought the recognition that you were no longer on the breath back? It wasn't your will. You see, you're already out of the picture. You didn't do any of this. This happened from some other force. This happened from life itself, from life meeting itself. There's a different force here when we take ourselves out of it, when we're not behind the mechanisms and controls. There's something else that's occurring. And it's life meeting itself. From that vantage point, when you are off the breath forgetful, it's as perfect as when you're on the breath remembering. There's no difference from the point of view of the universe. Now you're forgetting, now you're remembering. And that's what the Buddha is saying in the third foundation. There's no difference. He's showing us the perfection of what lies behind the assertion and ownership of self. He's showing us what the real mechanism of life is like when we no longer can claim our own empowerment within it. He's showing us the universe as it is, as it really is, when we're not claiming a fictitious place within it, because our place is always fictitious within it. So if that's not unsettling to you, So what does a practice look like when it's no longer separating itself from life, when there's no more dualistic response or mechanism I need to do to control life? And what is it that motivates or moves life towards its completion if it's not my force of will? The completion of the practice, just just listen to this. The tension that you apply to bring your practice together so that your mindfulness can be complete and uniform and continuous is actually the tension that's leading to forgetfulness. When we release the tension of needing to be awake, 
That's the final resistance where life can meet itself. Overcoming that resistance, the Sistine Chapel. Thinking that you are a part and that your will acts sufficiently on the mechanism of the universe to bring awareness together so that it will meet continuously is the driving force that separates it and casts forgetfulness as part of the scene forever. So he's taking us out there. He's really taking us out there in this one. And there's a complete abiding now where there's no dispute offered any access, any represent, any manifestation of the universe. None. No dispute. No argument. No resistance whatsoever. Forgetful, not forgetful. So what is the force that brings this together? If it's not my will, I've rested on my will, I've relied on my will, I've wanted my will. It's been the vestige of my hope. It's the strength I've applied. There is something. It's the intention that each of us have. And when we have worldly attention, intention, then the life looks pretty much the way we live it. When we have self-intention, it looks pretty much as a separate, as separation. But when we have the deepest intention of abiding in life, then that attention is the driving force to do just that. But we have so many competing needs, so many things that we have unfinished yet, we haven't completed. And so those are the intentions that our practice takes. If you feel awkward or inadequate or unworthy and you need or feel that you need to get over those feelings in order to be complete so that you can move to the next step, then that's where your intentions will go and that's what will have to happen before there's a resolution in which a new intention can arise. The universe doesn't try to get you there. It doesn't try to shove you one way as opposed to another. It's perfectly willing to allow you to suffer. So this takes us to the deepest level, the deepest quality of stillness. 
where we're long since beyond our personal salvation, our personal effort. Meaningless now. We've now entered the abiding. Where the self is not seen as separate from the idea of itself, but is the idea of itself and is included within the moment as an idea, rather than as something outside reflecting upon the moment, but as an idea within the moment. And with that, non-separation, the whole of the mind heals itself because it was only in thinking of ourselves outside that kept the rift in place. 